could gods from ancient Greece have their origins on other planet, descending to Earth to share their wisdom? Did Plato describe an invisibility machine way ahead of his time? And is a Mesoamerican ritual evidence for ancient flight? Most likely not, but let's find out. Hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? And this is episode 39. I'm your host, Frederick. This episode is based on Ancient Aliens episode 15 from season 3 called Aliens, Gods and Heroes. This will be an exciting episode where we will spend most of our time dealing with Greek religion and mythology. Towards the end I will talk a little bit about the Danza de los Voladores tradition from Mesoamerica and how shows like Ancient Aliens misuse these stories to promote their agenda. But this is also an exciting episode since it's the first one as part of the Archaeological Podcast Network. Homo shows like Dr. Kinkella's pseudo-archaeology podcast, A Life in Ruins, Heritage Voices, and the Rock Art Podcast. And if you listen through the main feed of the APN, I wish you a little bit extra welcome to this episode. Now, remember, as usual, you can find all the sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you can also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really, really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now that we have finished our preparations, let's dig into the episode. We are back in ancient Greece, a location that's become a steady stream of inspiration for ancient alien theorists. But why are we here? Well, that is an excellent question, dear my dear dear listener, because I am not convinced that the producers of this episode knew either. As we have learned, the ancient alien show was not really supposed to run more than a season. Surprisingly, the show was then renewed for three additional seasons, which caused the creators to rush to produce enough content. As a result, some of these episodes feel, well, very repetitive or similar to previous one. Well, this is one of them. And if you have been listening for a while, we dealt with Greek mythology back in episode 18, for example, together with the drunk mythology gals. I'll try to not repeat myself here, but there might be some overlap. But let's delve deeper into Greek mythology. First, let's clarify the meaning of myth for the ancient Greek, as this term has different connotations for us as modern humans. Typically, we use this word 
myth, we imply that it's untrue or fictional. And in the context of Greek language and culture, the term mythos means language, word, or simply a story. While these stories may contain elements of truth or historical fact, they are not necessarily meant to be taken as literal accounts of events. Instead, they often serve as vehicles for conveying important moral or philosophical messages, or as a means of exploring complex human emotions and experiences. As such, mythos can be viewed as existing on a continuing between objective truth and subjective interpretation, depending on the perspective of the individual or community engaging with it. There is no right or wrong version of the myth among the Greeks. They changed and grew organically depending on who, where or why they were told. The myth was meant to be narrated to an audience, not really be read in private. And that's why we have different versions of the same tales. Cities might highlight various aspects to make their influence greater, or poets might change parts to make the narrative fit with the ideals of the time they lived in. While the plot and characters might be similar, the content and main lesson might differ broadly. There was, so to say, no authoritative version of these myths, and most Greeks would probably think of there being only one correct version of the myth rather strange. But what function did these myths have in the society? Well, for starters, one function is actually entertainment. Many of these myths survived through plays and other forms of performance art. Remember, these stories were meant to be told to an audience. Why not add music, dance and a bit of extra flair and performance to it? Make it memorable and offer a much needed distraction while enhancing the audience understanding of the gods and their function in their society. Because while parts of it were meant to entertain, other parts were functioning to clarify the gods and their function. Explaining different rituals, festivals, reminding the audience of uh, the ritual's importance and origin. They could also be told to show proper ethical and religious behavior and offer a new argument in a new, in an ongoing debate. Now, these myths could also vein and grew in its popularity, it depending on what values were most desired at the time. So let's look at one of the claims we are presented with in the episode now when we're a bit warmed up. Philip Coppen gives us the following example. The ancients say that when they are talking about mythology, it is about unrecorded events of their past. According to the Greek myths, the child Zeus was nourished on a mixture of honey and milk at the udder of the goat. Now, around 1900 AD, a chamber in the Dictian cave was identified by locals as the birthplace of Zeus. And when archaeologists went in there, they discovered an altar with remains of numerous religious offerings, amongst them honey and goat milk. These remains date back 4,000 years to the exact period in which the ancient Greek stories took place. 
The question is, is this once again a coincidence that modern excavations find remains in this cave that match up with what's written in Greek mythology? That Zeus was fed milk and honey as an infant isn't anything we need to pay much attention to since it's a quite common mixture in Greek mythology. But is Coppens talking about a real archaeological find? Well, here's the thing. It's a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. Is the Dictaeon cave the birthplace of Zeus? As we discussed a moment ago, the answer to the question would depend on who told the story and at what time. So yes, some accounts mention Dictaeon cave as the birthplace of Zeus, but others will tell you that the birth occurred in the Idean cave over at Mount Ida. If you were to ask the poet Hesiod, the delivery didn't take place in a cave at all, but in the fertile lands around the city of Lyctus. The one thing that ties these accounts together is that all of these locations are on the island of Crete, trying to connect the birth of the god to the Minoan cultures. Now, let's suppose that the Dictaeum cave is the cave where I assume a highly awkward delivery took place. Do we really know where the location of the cave was? And again, we will have different answers depending on who we ask. Most famously, the site is associated with the Psycro Cave. If you had asked those living in the village of Palakiastro, the cave is located on the mountain just beside them called Mount Psephoras. Because that's the thing, the myth could be used to make a specific temple or place of offering more influential. These are just two versions that, these are just two versions that survive to our day, but there are probably even more locations on Crete with a similar story. Myth in ancient Greece could be used to enhance a city's political, religious, or even social status. But this was not only reserved for locations. Also, family could use myth to strengthen their influence or their standing within the society. For example, Hippocrates' family was traced back to uh, the deified hero of healing, Asclepius. But what about that excavation then and all of those finds? I believe that Coppens referred to an article by Arthur Evans, published in 1897, called Further Discoveries of Cretan and Aegean Script, with Libyan and Proto-Egyptian Comparisons. As the title alludes to the paper deal with, for 1897, new finds of early types of scripts on Crete. One part of the paper deals with a libation table found in the Sucro cave and it has a small, very small inscription upon it. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what libation is, it is a ritual where a liquid is offered to the gods or the dead sometimes. So pouring out a drink for one who died is a type of libation. And it is a ritual found in many different religions and locations. We have evidence for it in Sumer, Egypt, Greece, and even in Judaism. For example, in Genesis 35.14, Jacob pour out liquid and oil as an offering. Now, Evan discussed the finds in the article made in the cave up to that point and knows that some of the oldest layers, the oldest layer, 
date back to the Mycenaean period. This would make some of the artifacts about 4000 years old. Give or take a century or two there. But Evans does not claim that milk and honey have been found within the cave. But he does mention that cups and other vessels for liquids have been found. And that would make sense since it is a libation table he is discussing. Now there's three spots where cups were supposed to be a place carved out on the table. He writes, quote, The threefold receptacle of the Dictean table suggests some interesting analogies with a ritual usage which goes back to the earliest religious stratum of Greece. In the case of such primitive worships as that of Shades of the Departed and again in that of the Nymph, a triple libation was frequently offered. Okay, so what is this triple libation then? Evans bring up Homer's Odyssey, an example where again poets, not organized religion, have preserved rituals and why they might have been performed. And if we go to Odyssey book 10 and line 519, we learn that Tither, prince, do thou draw nigh, as I bid thee and dig a pit of a cubit length, this way and that, and around it pour a libation to all the dead, first with milk and honey, Thereafter with sweet wine, in the third place with water. We should note that Evans or later archaeologists never really claim that we have found residue of honey-milk mixture within the cave. Evans does, though, make a connection between the cave's association, being the birthplace of Zeus, and the libation gift of milk and honey. So it is noted that the cave had an essential religious association with early Mycenaean culture. So Coppens' claims are not as bad as they could have been. However, they take a very humoristic approach to myth and Sherry picks the versions that fits best with his narrative. But instead of the classical versions argued by Jehumerius, where the gods have their origin in ordinary men that through history has evolved into gods, Coppens have a bit of a different approach and claim that it is alien visitors that has evolved into gods. And as you might have noted, the cave itself is not really evidence that the Greek myths are true, as Philip Coppens and alien theorists want to believe. But could there have been evidence for alien visitations within the myth themselves. But ancient astronaut theorists believe this Greek myth is actually a metaphor for an extraterrestrial event. They believe the notion of gods being vomited up from the belly of their father actually describes mutinous aliens being expelled from the mothership. Any being which is swallowed up into a living creature will not be able to survive for three days. It will die from suffocation and will begin to decay. So what we have here is not a creature, but something else. It could have been an object which was clearly of a man-made or extraterrestrial origin. 
So what we have here is the story of the origin of the Greek gods, with a twist that the gods, of course, are aliens. Claims like these make me wonder how people can take these claims seriously. Reading our sources, it's pretty clear that authors like Hesiod, Homer, Plato, Apollonius, and others describe a man eating his children, quite clearly. But instead of focusing on specific claims such as whether Cronus was a metaphor for a spaceship, I think it's better for us to look deeper into Greek religion. If we understand how the Greeks view their religion and the gods, we are better armed to combat these pseudoscientific claims. So let's for a moment pretend that we're back in ancient Greek. Close your eyes and picture yourself standing in the bustling agora of Athens. Above us, the magnificence Acropolis can be seen perched atop the hill. As we feel the scorching sun beating down on us, we would instinctively seek shelter under the cool and shady colonnades that line the perimeter of the Agora. Maybe we sit down by one of the many fountains and maybe trying to listen to one of the philosophers' discussions. Now this is an important place, but not only as a meeting spot and a place to conduct business. No, it's also important from a religious and political perspective. Even when we now stand on holy ground, people would look at us a little bit confused if we were to ask what religion they belong to. Well, that's because the ancient Greek didn't really have a word for religion. The closest thing we get to something representing religion would be in service to the gods. Now, this didn't mean that everyone was supposed to give up their worldly possessions and live to serve the gods. With service, the idea was more that you behaved with religious correctness and showed proper respect towards the gods. You made reasonable requests and gave the gods their appropriate gift and participated in communal and family religious activities and festivals. If done correctly, you could accumulate goodwill with the gods serving both your house and your city. When reading Herodotus' writing about the faith of other nations, he usually used the term to worship the gods. He does not really attribute them to being of a different religion per se. But when discussing the Greek worship, Herodotus emphasized that they have a common blood together they have a common language and common temple. All of these are things that the Greek share to different themselves from other people's worships. While we today, luckily I would like to say, separate religion from all our other spheres, this was not the case for ancient Greece. Religion was embedded in every detail of your daily life. Most things you would Participate in a day would be accompanied by religious rituals or rules, and these include trade, farming, political processes, or any other part that you would participate in was integrated with religion. Even the concepts like atheist did not even exist until the 5th century BCE, and then the term atheist did refer to a lack of relations to the gods. 
not a lack of belief in the god. In retrospect, a Greek worshipper would still have more in common with a modern atheist when we look at the religious structure. The Greeks did not adhere to any doctrine or creed. You did not have to avoid pleasures of the world since there was no sin or redemption, no eternal damnation or fear thereof. There was no uh, hierarchical priesthood that would act as a body of power. During the archaic and classical periods of Greece, each city would basically have their own versions of the myth, gods, and their function. Now, that would change to some degree when the city stakes like Athens and Sparta increased their sphere of influence. And even more, this would change when Alexander and the Macedonians took over Greece in the 4th century BCE. And the closest thing we might get to a holy book would be Herodotus' writing. But even then, it was not written in stone. Due to a lack of written authorities, not really things such as heresy, since the texts were supposed to change due to their oral element. With that said, there was, however, a concept called asebia that could be translated to something like impiety. This could include temple robbery, striking a priest, or having the wrong ideas, or entering a temple when it was not supposed to be open to the public. According to the prophet Diophysus, Asebia could uh, be considered not honor the gods by worshipping them according to tradition. While they did not have a concept of sin, their religious intolerance game was quite strong. It was this, for example, Socrates was famously put on trial for. Athens did have a strict no-new-gods policy in place and did not have any interest in adding to the existing pantheon. That could also be a little bit due to xenophobia that was, you know, uh, at play here. Even so, the Greek religion changed, grew, and myth overtook each other in importance. Think of Zeus, the big hunch of god that we today probably think would be one of the most important gods. But that's not really the case. Well, he was important, but there were very few festivals in Zeus' honor, and those that existed was to very little importance to the people at the time. Very few cities named any month after Zeus, and his temples was often located quite outside the towns. But even here we see an evolution take place. Zeus did not start as a protector of social and moral order and the king of the gods. He began as a simple weather god. But the story surrounding him grew as time passed. Now, Zeus' wife was not Hera from the start either. It was a goddess called Dion, a name that we can find in early Linear B scripts. But Dion's time as Zeus' wife was relatively short and Hera took over during the Museum period. Now, over time, a plethora of gods have emerged and declined in significance. Those who adhere to a particular deity would often strive to promote their favorite god. An example of this can be seen in a hymn originating in Delphi, which urged for a constant veneration of Dionysus. 
instead of the customary winter-only devotion. It should be clear that the gods still had their domains and powers. We also see apparent opposition that could be used to demonstrate different values. Take, for example, cases where Athena would best Poseidon. To the Greeks, this would be an example of where intelligence beat force. We see orderly and disorderly gods. While a good Bacchanalia-style festival was welcomed, tidy gods were needed to counterbalance these type of events. You couldn't have a 24-7-11 party going on there. No, you needed some order to bring a bit of balance in cosmos. Now, in ancient Greek mythology, the gods were thought to bear a striking resemblance to humans, except the gods had a perfect, really perfect sculptured physique. Despite their distinct personalities, they were known to display all those familiar emotions to us mortals, including envy, vindictiveness, self-absorption, timidity, and even brutality. The gods, however, held quite a less-than-flattering view of us, mere mortal, often dismissing us as insignificant being. Furthermore, they were notorious for engaging in petty squabbles and dispute among themselves. The gods were not really worshipped because their tender love for their creation. Maybe they were worshipped more out of fear, since it could be a lot more dangerous not to honor them properly than to uh, not worshipping them at all. Now, but how do we know what we know about the Greek gods? Well, to some extent, is uh, through poets. Homer might have been the one that had the most significant influences. We have a lot of poems and other writing with stories dealings with the gods that uh, were used to demonstrate the gods' origin and purpose of rituals, but we also have philosophers. Plato often discussed the gods in his dialogues and used them as examples. As we covered, the gods were not separate from everyday life but highly incorporated in every aspect of it. While the written world can tell us uh, what some of the people in the society thought and how they view the gods, we can also use sculptures and pottery to try to understand their position among the everyday humans. Especially pottery can be very helpful in tracing the popularity of different gods and how ordinary people view them. So by looking at surviving vases, we can see, for example, in 560 BCE, that there was a shift in what was popular. Motifs on Theseus and the Minotaur and other ideas from the Attica tradition started to make an entrance in Athens. We also start to see Heracles and other Pan-Hellenic myths making an entrance. But then around 480 BCE, those motives start to shift out. So is there room for aliens in Greek mythology? Well, not really. The alien theorists made their arguments work by selecting one account from hundreds of different versions. Then claim that this version is the only one and leave out all the other contradicting accounts. 
They claim that the people who is to this day very renowned for their poetry and literature will be unable to describe an alien craft if they even saw one, which to me sounds quite straight. They would have the vocabulary and the shapes and all of that. They wouldn't need to retell it as Zeus in the sky with his lightning bolts. In the end, aliens are practically in compatible with the ancient Greeks' view of their own religion and their gods. On that bombshell, we will have a short message from our sponsor. But when we return, we will be exploring invisibility machines in Greece. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show. For as little as $2.50 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for, you will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you will gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. Welcome back. We have not gone too far and will remain in Greece for a little bit longer. Or rather, we will be dealing with Greeks writing about Lydia, a region now located in modern Turkey. In the show we hear about King Gyges and how he is supposed to have come to power. The writer of the show claimed that this event occurred in 716 BCE. That's quite an achievement since Gyges' reign was between 680 to 644 BCE. We learned that Gyges was a modest shepherd who was in the service of the king Candaules. As fate would have it, one day while he was tending to his flock in the fields, a powerful earthquake shook the ground beneath his feet, causing a deep chasm to appear before him. Intrigued by this unusual occurrence, he descended into the crevice and stumbled upon a crypt where he discovered a skeleton adorned with a precious gold ring. Without hesitation, Gyges took the possession of the ring and soon realized it possessed an extraordinary ability to render him invisible. With his new power, Gaius make his way to the king with a plan. He comes up with a plan. The next time he goes to visit the king, he brings that ring with him, turns himself invisible, seduces the queen, kills the king, 
takes over the palace. Giorgio Sukalos adds, When I read stories like Gyges of Lydia, who has found this ring, which gave him the capability of becoming invisible, then there are two things that I think of. One, is it just fantasy? Or do we have another reference here that describes misunderstood technology? Because today, researchers at Duke University are trying to develop an invisibility cloak. Now, Gyges is a verified historical figure who once held power over the kingdom of Lydia. But how is it with this story? Is it real? In trying to answer this, we must delve into two primary sources of information regarding Gyges' history, as it is documented in Greek literature. Let's start with the older account that we can find in Herodotus' histories in book one. Here we learn that Candaules then, quote, fell in love with his own wife, so much so that he believed her to be by far the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, I don't understand why Herodotus seemed to think that it's so strange that someone would believe their partner to be the most beautiful. Um, anyway, the king is so enamored that he goes to his favorite bodyguard, Gyges. Yes, here he is not a shepherd. Candaules tells Gyges that his wife is the most beautiful woman on earth. And not wanting to insult his employer, I assume that Gyges nods along in this and says that he's really lovely, sire. Herodotus then gives us a bit of foreshadowing by stating that uh, Candaules was doomed to misfortune and continues to talk about his wife's beauty to Gyges. Claiming that Gyges do not understand, he listens, but does he really get it? He hears, but does he really, really get it? Gyges can only truly understand the queen's beauty if he sees her naked. And in Herodotus' account, Gyges proclaim, What an unsound suggestion that I should see my mistress naked. Gyges perceived that it would be against what's right and that he, he really do believe Candaules' claim, but uh, that seeing the queen naked would be against what's just. The king has none of that. Courage, Gyges. Don't be afraid of me. Then the king tells the poor bodyguard where to hide to get a good look at the queen. And as you might suspect, the queen of course sees Gaius when he's trying to sneak out, but she does not, according to Herodotus, scream or cry. Well, this should have been a grand upfront among the Lydians and other foreign countries, according to Herodotus, to be seen naked. However, the queen seems somehow to understand that her husband has put all of this together and she starts to craft a plan. The next day she calls Gaius to her and gives him two alternatives. Now, Gaius, you have two ways before you. Decide which one you will follow. You must either kill Candaules and take me and the throne of Lydia for your own, or be killed yourself now without further ado. That will prevent you from obeying all Candaules' commands in the future and seeing what you should not see. And Gaius opts for the first alternative, 
So he kills Candaules and takes the throne with the queen. The oracle in Delphi later approved Gaius as king since the people of Lydia started to revolt and would only follow the new king if he were ordained by the oracle. There's also an earlier account that's attributed to Santus, the Lydian, preserved in Nicaulus of Damascus writing during the 1st century BCE. And this one differs a little bit from what we just heard. Here the king does not trust his bodyguard Gyges, who is sent out to just do more and more impossible tasks. During one of these tasks, he sees the queen, falls in love and tries to seduce her. But the queen is uninterested and tells the king to kill Gyges. But a slave finds out and warns this poor bodyguard who then counterattack, kills the king and takes the kingdom after again have been ordained by the oracle at Delphi. While this story differs from Herodotus to some extent, we see two things in common. That Gaius starts out as a trusted bodyguard and that he, with some help, kills the king and takes over the kingdom with the approval of the gods. One of the key differences is that Herodotus tries to go into great length, trying to almost make Gaius into some sort of victim. Reading a bit behind the lines, we can see that he's m- merely a victim of fate. Herodotus even tells us that the king was destined to fare ill, most likely due to his lack of respect for tradition and what's proper and just behavior. Since the king shows signs of being a tyrant, Gyges has to set things right, and by following his fate, what was decided from the start, something that was considered important within Greek society, Gaius could arguably act in just. It was a justified redesign that he committed. And by having this confirmed by the oracles, the new dynasty could start. But we have a lack of the magic ring. Where does this fancy little ring come from then? Because it is not mentioned at all in these sources. And the alien theorist accounts comes from the, not the historic writers, but from the philosophical. The account can be found in Plato's book, The Republic. While the story we heard first appears in The Republic, some crucial details are left out. Of course, for starters, Plato is telling the story as a way to make an argument for what justice is. In the second book of The Republic, Plato has Glaucon set up an example. Quote, Let us suppose that the just and the unjust has two rings, like that one of Gyges in well-known story, which make them invisible. The main idea Plato wants to discuss in this part is morality and whether acting just has instinct or instrumental values or a combination of them. Basically, do you only behave morally to gain the reputation of being just, or do you behave morally because the act is valuable in itself to you? 
Socrates claim within the text that acting just has both instinct and instrumental values. Glaucon used the example of the invisibility ring as a metaphor. Both the just and the unjust get the ability of invisibility. Nobody can see you. And you can do whatever you want without consequence. With this ability, the philosopher argues that the just would stop acting appropriately since it basically wouldn't matter. If moral and immoral acts was viewed both as moral, why would anyone act morally? So this is our question and it's why Plato most likely made the story of Gyges rings up. We see elements and themes that Plato tend to use in other places. The reason why Gaius uh, turned into a shepherd is to make it clear that the regicide in this case is an immoral act. Later in the Republic, it becomes clear that different classes meeting as equals will always lead to destruction of the ideal regime. Even the cavern sounds much like Plato's cave analogy in that book where the cave represents a city and the ring could be viewed as the power of rhetoric. It could be argued that by obtaining the ring, Gaius got the power of the poets and philosophers, the power that with words change your appearance. With good rhetoric, you can make an unjust action appear in the eyes of the people to be a just action. Herodotus depicted a character following the fate to uphold tradition while Plato is trying to create a villain to fulfill his role in his thought experiment. Why Plato went with Gyges was probably due to him being a character that people kinda knew about. We have fragments, for example, of a play. The author of it is not entirely known. I see in speculation that it could be Finricius or Ion of Chaos, that could be the author behind it. Plato added the, as we all know, to just make it a little bit more believable. Just as many poets started their story about the gods by thanking the muses for the revelation they were going to tell. So what account is correct then? We have now dealt with three versions, and it's a fair question. I think due to the elements Plato included in his rendition that we can just dismiss it as a philosophical thought experiment. A bit of too many things line up with other things Plato discussed in the Republic for it to be an accurate account of what happened. Now, Herodotus' version is the oldest that we have preserved, but it contains several plot holes and loose ends. I get the feeling that Herodotus was using parts that he heard from Santos and then added a few things to highlight the values he deemed essential in Greek society. And Santos' version, sure, is not the original source we get it in, but it's the most direct and straightforward. Now, we can't currently say without further evidence which of these two are the true account. Well, what do you think? What version sounds most reasonable to you and why is that? Let me know. Now, as we note, however, there is no need for aliens and neither text allow for it to be an extraterrestrial power source or whatever we should call it. Well, 
if they did not travel all this way to pose us with a question regarding moral philosophy. But this is how the alien theories misuse ancient sources. While they, in this case, didn't make things technically up, they left out the context entirely. Without the context, what they say might sound a bit reasonable on the sources, but when we look closer at the sources, we learn that they rewrote kind of the story to fit their preferred narrative. Now, after this quick break, we will leave the Mediterranean for a trip over the Atlantic. Uh, Don't worry, we're not heading over to Atlantis, but we're heading to Mesoamerica. Welcome back. Now we're moving on from classical Greece and exploring something new on the show today. Our destination is Mesoamerica, where we will investigate the Danza de los Voladores, also known as the Ceremony of the Flyers. And this ritual has managed to survive for over 10 centuries against all odds. It's still performed today by various indigenous groups in Mexico, including Totonauks, Nahua, Atomi, and Haustec. We also see this performance among the Maya in Guatemala and Pipil in Nicaragua. The ceremony has various forms depending on who and when it's performed. However, in Ancient Aliens, they incorrectly claim that there's only one authoritative version of the ritual. The truth is that there are, as we will learn, multiple versions of it. The most known version of the performance can be witnessed today in, well, Veracruz or Hidalgo, that area of Mexico. And the ceremony usually consists of five people. And a pole is raised on a square during this ceremony usually near the local church. The pole's height varies, but it's rarely over 30 meters. At the top of the pole is a square wooden platform and a rotating cylinder called the tecomate. The ceremony leader stands on top of the tecomate, equipped with a flute known as uh, tapizali and a drum called huahuetel in Nahuatl. And the leader plays this instrument simultaneously while performing on top of the tecomate. Now the leader is not secured by ropes, but the flyers are tied to the platforms with rope tied to their belts. The flyers go down headfirst with their arms outstretched, kind of like birds flapping in the wind, and, and they twirl around the pole. So in close to the ground they then somersault and land upon their feet. And there are multiple versions as I mentioned of the dance including some some that's modified to align a little bit with Christian beliefs and rituals. The dance can be organized into various sonnets and is performed to somewhat adhere to a Catholic storyline but from but from a Nahuatl perspective. But what is the ancient alien claim about this ceremony? Let's tune in and hear. The Totonic people who practice this ceremony today 
claim it is a dance that was invented 500 years ago as a plea to the gods to end a severe drought. But could this ancient ritual have different, perhaps otherworldly origins? The legend that the narrator refers to seems to originate in Quatzintla and is supposed to take place around 450 years ago, give or take. But they're leaving out some key elements, such as the people were supposed to cut down the tallest and strongest tree that will become a symbol for the tree of life. And performing on top of the tree would increase the chance of the sun god to hear the prayers and be filled with so much joy and fervor that he would restore the luscious vegetation from that rot. But then you have other versions, for example in Kaukwila, the story is set in ancient times long, long ago. There the flyers prepare for a ceremony to again remove the drought. But when they perform it, they just fly away and then return 12 days later in the spiritual form of rain. But this almost seems to backfire since the rain is just too much and too heavy. In fact, it does not stop for eight days. And when the villager asked what happened to their elders, they are being told that they, these flyers have flown away and transformed into different rain gods. And we can find the documented variation of this ritual going back to 1528 when Fernandez de Oviedo witnessed one version celebrated during the coca harvest by the Pipil or Nawa people. It was a little bit different compared to what we see celebrated today by the Totonacs. So the Pipil celebrated with a 70 meter pole that had on top of it an image of the Coca god. De Oviedo referring to this god as Cacagout. Uh, Two boys around seven years old were tied to the pole and then circled down as ten musicians played. The boys were wearing bird masks and was equipped with different accessories like bows and arrows and feathers and fans and that type of things. And this version could be interpreted as a representation of the ascent of the cacao deity made up from the underworld up to the heavens. And this rite was supposed to take place both at the start of the harvest and at the end of it. It did not, however, take long after the Spanish arrival for the indigenous people to start attempting to preserve their culture by describing it as something else to the Spanish chroniclers. In the writings of uh, Diego Duran in 1560, for example, he described these festivals that we just heard about. But instead of attributing it to a deity, he is told that it's a game they do as a sort of sort of sport. And the Chronicle is even putting this in the section of his book where he deals with the amusements and the sports of the people he met in central Mexico. And an exciting part of Diego Duran's narrative is that he describes the flyers at as being dressed as both birds and monkeys. And this rite can also be found among the Kiche Mayans in Guatemala, but then the dancers are dressed as monkeys. Fortunately, we have access to more than just written accounts from Spanish chronicles regarding understanding the Voladores ritual. 
Indigenous people of Central America have also depicted elements of the ceremonies in codices from the colonial period, but uh, such as Porifio Diaz Codex and Fernandez Leal Codex. And these beautiful drawings attest to the ritual's importance and uh, can give us some insight how the people of that era viewed them. But what is the origin and meaning of the Valadores ceremony according to the ancient astronaut theorists? According to ancient astronaut theorists, the Voladores ritual is a reenactment of a close encounter with alien visitors in the distant past. They believe extraterrestrials descended upon the flat mountaintops of the Palpa region in Peru around 500 AD, dropping from their aircraft and gliding down to Earth in spiraling circles. The Voladores ritual was very technological, as in, you know, these beings descending from the sky in the circle signifying arrival of the gods. Where does that flying or descending gods motif originate? Our ancestors saw something because why would you hurl yourself from a hundred foot pole out of nothing to imitate a bird? Birds are not that important. Something very significant happened. I I have to say this quite a brave attempt trying to connect the ritual to the Nazca lines and the Palpa region to start the ceremony is a lot older than 500 CE, meaning the origin is not likely related to Nazca lines since they themselves were created from around 500 CE and after. Secondly, as we noted throughout this episode, there is not a meaning, there's not a single original reason. It will vary depending on who you ask and when you ask them. We have noted that the ritual can be found from Guatemala to Mexico, connecting to different gods at different times. For simplicity, we can have a quick glance uh, around our gears regarding the Totonauk's view on the ritual. And based on research from Martha Nargera, we can read that the ritual could be a representation of birds or spirits of the forest. The first reading could represent eagles and that the dance represent the dead warriors accompanying the sun across the sky. There could be, however, another symbology within the ritual and narrative. Luisa Viani is making a good case that the dance uh, performed, for example, in El Tajin symbolize hurricanes and weathers, context we see uh, within the myth. And bird is a lot more important in Mesoamerican religion that he seems to be aware of scaringly calling himself an expert on the topic. But as we note with the Greek myth, the myth of Mesoamerica only seemed to contain alien interferers if you leave out significant bits of them. But the alien vanished as soon as we start to look at the legends in the context of their history and religious connections and foundation in its uh, society. However, it amply shows how the alien theory is robbing us, every one of us, not to say at least uh, it robs indigenous people of their heritage and their traditions. 
nearly extinct traditions after a lot of attempts from the church, but uh, a different story there. Uh, and this is almost a, it is a similar attempt to remove these ideas from the hands of their rightful owners. And with that, I think we will close off for this time at least. But make sure to come back again next time. But till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the trench. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. You can also find me on most social media sites, and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you want to write an email in all caps, you can find my contact info on the website. You find all the sources and resources used to create this podcast on that same website. You often also find further reading suggestions to learn more about the subjects that we bring up. And if you want to support the show, you can do that through the APN network, become a member there. Or you head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support where you can become a member and gain a little bit extra fun stuff. Now, Sandra Mertelore created the intro music, and our outro is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 